Hey there, welcome to the Inclusion Solution Live. I am your season six host, Marisha Reese, and this season is from Empower to Me Power BIPOC Leadership Conversations. I am so happy to have you here on this journey with me. And in case you missed it, this season we're talking about some of the unique challenges that BIPOC leaders face, especially in dominant group spaces, and how they use their innate power, that me power, to thrive. It is a pleasure to welcome my guest today, Priya Dingra-Klosek. Priya is a business consultant, executive coach, mentor, and facilitator. She is the president and CEO of Consultant On The Go, LLC, a consulting firm that focuses on diagnose, diagnosing and improving the fundamental human interactions upon which all successful businesses are built. Priya works with her clients collaboratively to identify and implement strategic customized solutions for their business and cultural needs. Priya has more than 20 years of experience working in the areas of talent management, leadership development, change management, and diversity and inclusion. Her corporate experience includes working for companies like Ashland Inc., Great American Insurance, and Fifth Third Bank. And she has experience working globally on various initiatives in countries like Canada, Europe, India, and the Philippines. Priya, welcome to the show. Thank you. And so by way of further introduction, you all know that I like to start with our I am statements, which we use here at the Winters Group to highlight our intersecting identities and the lived experiences that we bring into the conversation. I will model it, and then Priya, I will invite you to introduce yourself in a similar way. So I am Black, cisgender, able-bodied woman. I'm a Zennial, which means I'm at the cusp of Millennial and Gen X. I always say that I lean more Gen X. Um, I'm an introvert, a wife, a daughter, a sister, a dog mom, and a current um, Southerner. I live in the Southeast United States, but was born and raised in the Northeast United States. So Priya, I invite you to share some of your identity with our listeners. Absolutely, Marisha, and thank you for inviting me to be here with you today. So I am really, the way I'm gonna start with that is a rebel. Um, I am a rebel that I believe found my cause. I'll talk more about that. I am an immigrant. I grew up in India. I am a single mom. And I feel like I am a disruptor no matter what room I'm in. And that's really where I want to start uh, Start was I think about my I am today. Yes, I love that. And we need disruptors, right? We, the work we do, we definitely need some disruptors. <laughs> so um, thank you so much, Priya. And in addition to all of who Priya is, she is also a very good friend of mine. So I am um, just delighted to have this conversation today and for the listeners to be able to hear um, some more about her story and how she thinks about um, approaching this work you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion work. So you shared a little bit about your identity. I wanted to go a little deeper and ask if you can share, you know, your story, your background and experience and how it led you to the work that you do today. Yeah. So, you know, as I think about that question, to me, it always goes back to the ripe old age of 10 growing up in India. And that's part of why I was saying, like, I'm a rebel who found my cause <laughs> because I feel like this work found me. I didn't really go seek it. Uh, it was who I was. It was where I was. Um, 
And the story that that comes to mind when I'm often asked that question, how I started in this work is, you know, at, at the age of 10, um, I realized that as a young girl, I was an equal to my cousin who was a boy. And the way that came about was I was watching him one afternoon and he did something that I know I was told was not respectful or shouldn't have been done. And so I kind of told him not to do it. And he went crying to my paternal grandmother. And my paternal grandmother comes to me and goes, what's going on? And I tell her, right? I'm very proud that, hey, what you told me was disrespectful. I followed through and I told him not to do it. Long story short, she looked at me and in a breath, she said, he can do it. He's a boy. Mm. And Marisha, that was the moment that I remember just looking at her going, wait a minute, what do you mean I'm not equal? And I'm older than him. So my in my yeah. Indian culture, he should be respecting me because I'm older than him, even if I was by five years. But you're telling me we're not even equal? Um, and I, I and I really remember, even as I talk about this in this moment, I get goosebumps. Um, I felt really disrespected. And I didn't talk to my paternal grandmother for several weeks when I used to be there every day after school. Because wow. I could not in my brain just fathom that someone else would not see me as even being an equal. Yeah. And long story short, as I fast forward that, as I think about my career over the last 20 some years, I, you know, have always looked for how do we create equity in the spaces that we are. Um, and, and that's really how, how I've come to be uh, as a practitioner, and not just in the equity space, but as, as I even think about it through the lenses of change and change management. Yeah, I love that, that story and thank you for sharing. And it's amazing how there's things that happen to us at a younger age that just stick with us, right? And it may, we may not even constantly think of it, but it comes back around and right. Like, oh yeah, I remember that incident. So that's very powerful story and I love it. Um, and thank you for sharing. And I want to, you touched on in your um, I Am about, um, you know, being an immigrant. And I want to go dig a little deeper into that as well. And how would you say that that lived experience, you know, you growing up in India, then coming to the U.S. and how that, you know, shaped you and shaped the, the work, um, the work that you do and just how you approach things in the world today? Yeah, I think that was a, um, you know, my move was definitely one of those defining moments. So I have uh, lived here in this country for about 30 years. Uh, this year will be 31. Um, and so I came here in my, when I was 20. And, you know, that's, at least for me, that's a very critical data point in this, as I respond to your question, because, you know, I grew up, uh, even though I grew up in India, a developing country, I grew up very privileged. Mm -hmm. And I, I grew up where, you know, when I learned how to drive a drive and I needed the car, I would ask my dad for the car keys and he would, you know, hand me some money for the gas and for some food to eat with my friends and he would hand me the car keys. It was, it was, there was privilege assigned to it, right? I didn't quite ever know it was privilege because that was just what I lived. That's who I was. Fast forward to then being an immigrant and coming to this country where when I moved to the U.S., I, I moved here with my sister who was 17 and my mom, um, who had always been a stay-at-home mom, but decided to make the move with us. My dad didn't move with us. Okay. And so what was transformative and kind of almost like an overnight realization was 
uh, that privilege that I took for granted wasn't there because within the first three to six months of my having moved here, I realized I had to become a high up household. That mm. I had to suddenly not just figure out how to navigate a new culture, but I also had to figure out how are we going to pay bills? And uh, wait a minute, you need insurance when you get a car? And how do you navigate all the systems um, that, you know, again, just there was a cultural difference, country cultural yeah. difference, but even just suddenly having to be responsible, right? So nobody was handing me a car, car keys with gas money. Uh, I was looking around going, I got to take the bus and I have to shop at Goodwill. Um, and so it was defining um, because in that moment, I recognized one, the privilege I grew up with. Mm. And it gave me a different sense of um, awareness of my environment. Um, having, you know, and again, coming here um, and then coming here without a degree. So when I came here, I only had half my bachelor's. So mm. it wasn't like I was moving you know, with the with the with the career to fall back on or background to fall back on. So I had to figure out how was I going to work? How was I going to sustain a household with my mom, who was also, you know, working at a, at a very minimum wage job? Uh, my sister was in high school. And so that experience, even 30 years later, defines me. Mm -hmm. I talk about it. I share that with, with friends and with family. I'm proud to say, you know, my first year when I was here and I had to buy a winter coat and I had to buy things for the house, for the apartment, all came from Goodwill. Mm -hmm. Right. So it allowed me to really recognize the value of not just hard work, but those things that I would just took for granted. Uh, and that has defined me in a lot of different ways as I do this work today. Yeah, it's to my earlier point around the the realization that um, coming as a immigrant, starting from nothing, mm -hmm. and then having to navigate a system that wasn't designed for me, I didn't grow right. up in it. Mm -hmm. uh, it. It was definitely very eye opening, um, and I I'm I'm very grateful for that experience. Yeah. And you know, you just said something wasn't the system that wasn't designed for you and you didn't grow up in it. And I'm just thinking some of us that grow up in it still wasn't designed, <laughs> right? That, and it's just that's like, it. Which is why we are having this conversation and the need for for spaces for, for um, individuals like us. But um, thank you for sharing that story. I think that will be really, um, maybe, maybe somewhat relatable to folks that are listening as well that may have a similar experience. I want to talk about um, cultural competence. So, you know, I know you do a lot of work around cultural competence. I know we've partnered in the past with with work and in the present <laughs> work around cultural competence and helping organizations, you know, um, build that capacity and that strength. And when we talk about Asian or Asian American culture, I know that it's, that's broad, right? And I know you have also done several sessions for us, even unpacking. Right. Asian culture, Asian in the workplace, um, and what that means. And so for you, what are some like cultural differences that Asians or Asian Americans bring to the workplace that you think are really important for leaders and others to, to know and that they really shouldn't ignore? And then as you talk about that, just like, why is it important for leaders to really have that cultural competence, mm -hmm. right? To understand <laughs> all these different nuances, different things that, um, it, it, each individual brings into the workplace. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, again, I appreciate you kind of highlighting when we talk about Asia or Asian culture, there are so many countries, right? And <laughs> there are similarities, but we're so right. different, right? But I remember um, when you did that, the, the pre, the, um, that content and you share yeah. the map, like you're like, it's so many and people can, will, will tend to lump it all or may lump it all together. So that I think it's important to highlight, like it's, it's, not a monolith, right? It's, a it's not, it's not. And we are so dynamic. And even as we talk about just country cultures, even within country cultures, we know mm -hmm. there, you know, we're talking in generalizations and not stereotypes right. uh, in, in essence, right? And I think, so when I think about kind of the Asian culture or tying it then to kind of the lens of that Asian American culture, I think, you know, one of the things that, that kind of resonates quite a bit and still shows up uh, quite a bit um, through a lens of generalization is that collectivism mm -hmm. you know in in our in our in like i'll speak specifically in our indian culture for example we are taught uh, to be collective we are taught to pay attention and focus and sacrifice for the larger group than be mm -hmm. yourself or be selfish right, right? Uh, because we look at individualism often as being selfish in our culture mm -hmm. uh, and that shows up in how we communicate uh, the language we use, um, how we may write our performance appraisals. I remember years ago, I was interviewing for a position and I have a tendency to use more we than I. Right. Didn't, didn't know that at that point, right? Back to, again, we're in our culture. We don't even know we're fish in water, as, as we've talked about, I know, uh, for years. And I remember I kept saying the response to every question for the interview was I said, we, you know, we did this, we did that. And I remember the interviewer kind of paused for a second and just looked at me very directly and said, what did you do? Hmm. And I said, well, I just told you everything that I did. And his response was, but you kept saying we, so who were the we? Right. And I remember just sitting back and going, oh, <laughs> they are interpreting my we as other people, but I'm saying, you know, I was part of a team. We worked right, together. Right. Like I'm part of the winners group. I, I partner with the winter winters group. So I always say we, right? Recognizing, yes, there's an I and a you. Uh, but I think that's so, like, to me, that's, that's a big one that pops up typically because, you know, when we're thinking about, to your point, even to your question, broader question around what do leaders need to know as we talk about these behaviors, is that we show behaviors differently, back to behavioral interpretation. Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, if I speak more in terms of we, I am coming from a place of respect, but it could be perceived as that I am relying on another team or someone else to carry me. And I'm just going to show up as the leader and, and not do any actual work because that even shows up how we communicate. Mm -hmm. um, often when we look at Asian cultures, there's also a difference in communication styles. Uh, and not just from a perspective of language, but also from a perspective of being more introverted in some ways or indirect in our communication style. I know you, uh -huh. I know you as you've shared with me over the years, right? You are an introvert. Um, and so how do we now interpretate that? Because that's part of why often um, we talk about the bamboo ceiling that uh, Asians in the workplace face because mm -hmm. because of their quiet and collective leadership style, they are perceived as not being leadership material, 
oh, if, especially if we're looking at the definition of leadership or executive presence through a very monocultural lens. Right. right. If we believe that the leader that is going to be a high potential and needs to be loud and expressive and direct, then we will not quite appreciate those other behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, yeah, like we define what leadership means or different things mean by whatever the dominant culture narrative is. Right. And so, so very important to understand that there's, we're not all the same and they're, um, there are differences that make a difference and is why we're having these conversations. And I think, you know, when you were telling your story about the um, the interview, you reminded me of um, one time I was, I had a performance review and my manager told me, well, I don't toot my own horn, but that's not, you know, it's not something that I do. I'm not out there like, oh, Marisha did this, Marisha did that. And so that same type of thing, but it's like in her mind, that's how you, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Because that's how the dominant culture shows up and that's what they do is they're tooting their own horn. And so, and that was something that happened to me probably maybe 15 plus years ago, but I remember it. Like it just sticks with me. Like she all, you know, and I'm just like, it was very, and Priya, she never once this whole time before the performance review suggested that maybe I should toot my own horn. So now it's like in the review, it's on the record, like I don't do this, but that's a whole other thing, but to, but to your point of just how you show up differently, like I'm more so, you know, going to talk about the team or the different thing and not talk about what Marisha personally did. I try to do better with that now, Priya, but still. I, well, and we all do, right? I mean, we know ultimately as we think of this journey of cultural competence and equity, you know, that we want to be able to adapt. We want to mm -hmm. be able to be the we and the and, for example, right. and find a balance. I think the big piece becomes is recognizing that, you know, if we are part of marginalized groups, if we are not part of the dominant narrative, we are constantly flexing to match the dominant narrative. So, you know, when I think of leaders that may be part of the dominant narrative, cultural competence becomes critical because the invitation there, at least from my perspective, is to invite them to flex a little as well and say, you know, Marisha is a really good performer, but she seems she's a little quiet and she doesn't really call out her accomplishments. Maybe I can coach her. Right. Maybe I talk to her about how best I can recognize her publicly, where she's comfortable with that. So others know she's doing a great job and is an A performer. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the, the balance that that yeah. we need to strive for. Because, again, just my pet peeve is that often we, some, we put the burden of all of what we're talking about on those that are part of the subordinated groups. Right. right? Like, Marisha, you must do better. Exactly. Like, the extroverts do it, and, you know, they're right. loud. You have to do better, because how could you be so quiet? It's yeah. not that let's have the extroverts just maybe take a breath for a minute and calm down. Right. right. I'm an extrovert, trust me. I, I said, this is advice for me as well, right? Like, take a breath. <laughs> but, yeah, and then it could be exhausting, right, to always have yes. to flex. I mean, always have to shift and switch, code switch, all those things. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, it's again, it's finding the balance. To me, mm -hmm. ultimately, this work around equity really, I think, needs to center around how do we find balance? At, because I think for so long that we have operated from the dominant default, that now that we are asking for flexibility, 
with both parties, as I'll put it, it's kind of like, well, what do you mean? I've never had to do that. So right. I, you know, to me, it's all about finding balance. Yes, yes, I agree. So Priya, so I'm sure you've heard this, the same type of comments that we've heard at the Winters Group um, that, you know, organizations, we just can't find the diverse candidates. We can't find BIPOC candidates to fill leadership roles. Um, so what do you say? Like, what, what do you say when you hear things like that? Um, I'll let you fill in the blanks of what I really say, <laughs> but I'll, I'll answer your question a, a, a little bit more professionally. <laughs> right. This is not the after hours podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, that's a, but, but folks can, can let their creativity and curiosity flow. Um, you know, honestly, my uh, response often to clients and even to colleagues that are saying this in all good intentions, right? We just can't find black accountants or we just can't find, uh, you know, black engineers or whatever that narrative might be, is I often invite them to kind of take a step back and recognize that their job description or the behaviors or the competencies that they are interviewing for are often not written in such a way that someone who's not part of the dominant group would look like they're qualified. Hmm. Because again, part of what to me, all, this all ties back to is, you know, behavioral interpretations. I could have a very competent BIPOC individual come in for an interview, but if I am judging their performance in that interview through a very uh, dominant lens, or a very judgmental lens. Let's not even call it dominant. I mean, it may just be my lens where it's my default. Mm -hmm. And I look at everything you do and I say, well, I would never do that. Why is Marisha doing that? Well, there's no way I would think you're competent enough. Even though you may have all the requirements, all the skills, this is where then folks often like to use the word and say, well, you know, Marisha really was good, but just something didn't fit right. Like she just would not be a good culture fit. You know, to me, that's the part where we don't want to acknowledge and take our own lenses into account or yeah. take into account that our job description is written in such a way that it weeds out those individuals that may not have had a very traditional trajectory in their career. Right. I mean, it's we can look at it through a variety of dimensions of diversity. Um, yeah. You know, I think of my experience, I didn't, you know, I didn't just go to high school and go to college full time. You know, I went to high school, I went to college full time for two years. And then when I moved to the US, I went to college part time. So I was a non-traditional student. I went to school in the evening mm -hmm. from 6.30 to 9.30 because I had a full time job during the day, right? So if, if my resume was being looked at it would be looked at through a different lens than someone who just went through and completed their degree by 23, 24, and then, you know, went through the trajectory. Right. So this yeah. is where cultural competence becomes even more critical. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's just, I think for us, because we've been doing this work for so long, it seems so common sense. Like, of course, like that's what, you know, we should be doing and looking, um, looking outside of our traditional norm, right? Or the people that always fit the mold that we think they should fit. Yes. And I think that's why it's just so important for, for our work. And, you know, um, there's many attacks against the work now and all of that, but it's just, it really is about making sure that we're all, everybody feels that they belong and are included. And 
Um, sometimes it's that down to that, just being that simple. Um, and like you said, you know, sometimes you just have to question, like, why, why, why do I have this bias? Like, right, right, why do I have this stereo or this thing against Priya because she didn't mm -hmm. say the thing the way that I would have said it? You know, and having peace. So sometimes it's just as simple as making, getting leaders to start asking themselves those questions, right, and self-reflect, like, hmm, why does that make me uncomfortable? Um, and so definitely. Our work is definitely needed. I'm putting this plug in here. Um, yes. <laughs> and we will continue to do it despite all of those, those naysayers out there. Um, when you think about organizations and, you know, so back, you know, back to talking about mm -hmm. can't find the candidates and all that. So now, okay, I found the candidates. And as you know, and I know, when we look at data, those the can BIPOC candidates are more often to leave the organization um, quickly um, because probably they don't find it inclusive, they don't find it equitable, and all that. And so, what responsibility do organizations or leaders have to really focus on? So you you know you brought you got the talent in now, okay? So now we're not saying I can't find it, I found it. But look, Priya, they keep leaving. So what is not my problem? So what are the some of the things they could do to just be more intentional to really like? Um, increase the engagement and create, you know, decrease the turnover rate and really build those pathways to leadership for BIPOC. Yeah, and we hear this all the time. We can't keep them, right? That's the that's okay. typically the way the way it shows up. You know, to me, I'm going to zoom out for 30 seconds as I answer that 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 question. You know, when we talk about cultural competence and we're talking about dominant and you know subordinated narratives and all those things. I think the biggest step in this journey that organizations and leaders need to take that's so critical is first, just the awareness that we are operating from these systems that were not designed for everyone. Right. Right. And I know when I say it, it seems so simple, but I realize it's it's complex, right? It's because we are so embedded in these systems and we don't often take a step back and even look at how they impact different groups. But I think that's the first step of an organization, because if we are not willing to kind of just self-reflect and assess where we are, then all we're going to do is keep reinforcing our stereotypes that, one, there is no BIPOC talent that exists out there because somehow BIPOC people have you know, no skills and competencies. Mm -hmm. It's very specific to the dominant narrative uh, or men for that matter. We could look at it even through gender, right? As we plug that in. Um, and then as we continue to think about business and business growth, there's going to be ultimately an impact to the business, right? So we could sit with our stereotypes and just just kind of, you know, keep, keep just saying we're doing everything. It's just not happening. Or we could truly authentically self-reflect and look at our systems and look at our culture, which is where, to your earlier point, cultural competence becomes so critical. Because again, what we're not saying is, at least that's how I, you know, I choose to process this, is I'm not saying everything is bad in any system. Mm -hmm. Every system has some great things in it, whether it's our values, it's our beliefs. And at the same time, if we truly want to create environments where we are bringing in BIPOC individuals, generational diversity, like pick your dimension, right. we need to start looking at our systems and saying, how do these systems impact these groups? Mm -hmm. And by the way, some organizations may look and say, oh, nothing, we've got it figured out. 
Others may realize that whether it's their competency models that talks about executive presence, that's one of my, my personal <laughs> triggers, just putting it out there, right? Um, how are we defining those things? Because often we are defining them through a very narrow lens. So, so you know, I think doing that work becomes critical and, and part of, you know, from a change management perspective, what's in it for the organization? What's in it for the, for the leaders? Well, it's retention, it's productivity, because there is a cost to the organization when we recruit and someone leaves. Yeah. There's some <laughs> cost, right? We train them, their benefits, we have to recruit the next person. Right. A business can only sustain that much loss financially over a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the system piece is so key. And that's the piece that, and it's the hardest, right? The, yeah. the changing the systems because, and hardest to get organizations or maybe just the leaders in the organizations to really get on board because sometimes, you know, because usually the folks at the top are, um, you, you brought in the gender too. So maybe white male mm -hmm. would be predominantly at the top and the system works well for them, right? <laughs> so it's like, why do I need to change anything? And so that's when it, and sometimes when we're doing this um, work, it feels like it's taking so long. We feel like we went, got a little bit, and now we're back. And it's, and when you look at it, yeah, because the system, it took so long for that system to get to where it was, right? And to try to now change it and peel back. And knowing that the folks with the power and at the top, maybe they don't want, you know, and I think, oh, I'm not trying to say yep. everybody <laughs> doesn't want to, but more often than not, we find, you know, like there's just that resistance and that people don't want to change. So it is, it is really difficult, but it definitely is. And I'm glad you brought that in. It's the system thing. It's something that we need to change the system. It is. And I think to your point, right, I, you know, again, it, part of it is I think sometimes people don't even know they're operating from a system mm, because, yeah. you know, if I've always lived a certain way or I've always just done things a certain way, yeah. I don't stop and say, oh, wait a minute, this is a system or this is how I was programmed. Right. Yeah. I don't like most of us don't do that. And and right. most of us were also taught. And this is where, again, as I said, I'm a disruptor. I'm a rebel. You know, I grew up in a culture and even generationally where I was taught to just listen to my elders, trust my elders and respect my elders by believing everything they taught me. Right. So so and I'm not saying that was a bad thing or a good thing. Right. It's just that as we're thinking of where the world is today, that mm -hmm. there are individuals. I was doing this a long time ago where I was being disrespectful through my cultural lens because I was going, well, why can't I be that way or why can't I do that? Right. And when I was being told I couldn't do it because I was a girl or because of my age, I still wanted to know the why. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. But but that was my innate personality. But not everyone has the ability or even the desire to do that. True. So so to me, it's about not judging the system as much as it is inviting individuals and leaders and organizations to become curious about the system. Mm -hmm. And just to me, it's curiosity, because if you just ask those 12 questions or 10 questions that you may have, oh, why do I believe this? Oh, really? How does this impact this group? Or why does it impact differently? I may just get a data point that I may not be aware of. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it, it takes work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So I want to shift a little bit to talk about um, the Winters Group Empowerment Institute. Yeah which is um, our BIPOC leadership development program. And I'm sure that you've had experience 
with leadership development programs, either participating or or facilitating as part of them, or just having some of your clients share some of their leadership development programs. So why do you think though focusing specifically on a program that is for BIPOC leadership development is important? You know, I think the most critical piece there is creating an environment where individuals that are constantly being asked to code switch Mm. to be in a space where they don't have to explain their experience. Because often, at least in my experience, um, I've, I've, I've personally experienced it. I've talked to clients. I've talked to colleagues about it. Often when we talk about our experience through that non-dominant lens, we get the pushback that says, well, you know, it wasn't anything to do with your race or your ethnicity or your gender. Right, because the person that I may be engaging with doesn't understand my lived experience or is not even in a place through that their own cultural competence journey where they can empathize with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, because because even though you may trust me as a colleague, the, all the work I do, the reports I put together, the presentations I do, when I come and tell you that I felt a certain way because of some dimension of diversity, Somehow at that moment, you don't trust me. Mm. And so creating a space for BIPOC leaders, one allows us to come into a place where even though we might have not had exact same experiences, we could potentially empathize with each other and we don't have to code switch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's again, it's part of that finding that affinity. And what that also then allows us to do is not just kind of find that affinity to be in a space where we can learn and maybe put our guard down and engage at that real human level, but at the same time, talk about how we can navigate the dominant narratives. Yeah. Because again, in my opinion, there's a huge difference in just having leadership skills, right? Like just going to a leadership workshop. Or being in a room where I could talk about how as a woman or as a woman BIPOC business owner, when I walk into a room of white men, how I show up differently or how I am perceived. Right. And being able to to talk about how I can apply leadership competencies to that. Because it's not as simple as I just need, you know, as a woman leader, I just need to be empowered. I just need to go, you know, right. strong and talk like a man. No, there are other things that that can impact uh, how I'm perceived. And I need to be able to process that differently than just a canned leadership training that I Right, right, exactly. Yes. And I mean, yes, I can't even (laughs) add any more (laughs) to that, but yes. So thank you for sharing that. I want to touch on just real quickly, um, you have an amazing daughter. So it does amazing things that you tell me about. And I'm just like, at her age, I don't even think I was thinking any of this. Um, I know she has her own little businesses and all kinds of things. But so what message or messages do you already give her or would you give her about just like honing in on her innate power and just, you know, going out there? And I feel like she's doing that because with the stories you tell me, but I know that sometimes as young people, we get messaging, right? And that leads us into how we show up in the workplace. So what are some of the messages you give her to make sure that she knows, look, I could stand out, I could be who I am, and no one has to tell me who I am? 
<laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for, for just sharing those kind words about her. Um, you know, I like to, first of all, talk about parenting as being a science experiment. Um, <laughs> as parents, all our parents have done this. They, they did what they thought was best. And then they sit back and then they see us grow up and then they, you know, silently or very actively judge our decisions on whether we are making the right adult decisions or not, right? But, you know, my biggest message to her, and, and I've said this to her since she was very young, is, you know, I have tried to make her aware of the environment that she is in. And from a very young age, I would talk about power dynamics or I would talk about biases around gender or biases around uh, around individuals that may be BIPOC or immigrant as I am. And, and my goal there as I educated her on that was not to create a polarized worldview or for us and them. To me, simplistically, it was about helping her realize that the system that she's operating in has different rules for different people. Mm -hmm. And I wanted her to learn the system. Because when I think about my experience, no one ever sat me down and taught me the system, right? I was even in my corporate life 20 some years ago, um, I was not paid what I was, was due for a role. Uh, I was given a job, I came in, I was heading up recruiting, by the way, so I had access to payroll, uh, right? <laughs> but I realized as I came into that role that my recruiter that reported to me was making more money than me. And when I brought that to my director's attention, being part of a human resources for a large organization, my director said, well, you know, you started at a lower rate when you started with the organization and your salary never caught up. And then when you took this internal promotion, we couldn't give you more than the certain mm. percentage we had set. And I remember looking at him and saying, so I'm doing a role that I'm hired for. I am below the line, but now have team members reporting to me that make more than me. I'm using that example again. That's kind of just what came to me in this moment is I help her understand that if I knew that the system was designed that way, where as a woman or as a who was BIPOC, I might be perceived differently, even in salary negotiation, <laughs> I would have shown up differently. Yeah. I would have asked different questions. Uh -huh. So to me, the message to her, uh, when I think of even when we talk about, you know, me power, we're talking about our leadership program. It is about how do we acknowledge the system to understand it? So we navigate it strategically. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. We are going to change. We want the system to change. But at the same time, I know the system is not going to change overnight and may yeah. not change right. in my life. Right. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not giving up, right? Yeah. I'm not going to give yeah. up and I'm not going to stop being a disruptor, but I'm going to figure out how I can understand things enough so I can then be an advocate for myself. Yeah. That's my yeah. biggest message to her. And it's, it's hard. I know it's hard. <laughs> well, you're doing a wonderful job. And I just say that she is lucky and blessed to have you as her mother. Um, as we wrap up, Priya, I asked this question of all my guests. Um, so Rebel Priya, Disruptor Priya, um, what is your me power story? So um, I think, well, we, I didn't talk about it on this particular episode, but we know when you think about empower, it's like I'm giving you the power, 
right? And we want to, we're not waiting for anyone to give us the power. So we flipped that around to me power. And so I think it's already come out in a lot of your answers and everything, but is there a story you want to tell us about, you know, what ways, how you hone into your innate power? You know, to me, simplistically, it's owning who you are. And um, it took me a long time to get to that where I could just answer it the way I did. Um, partly because, again, we're all products of our environment. As much as I was a rebel, as much as I was a disruptor, I myself didn't realize I was operating within constructs. And I had given up my power because of those constructs, right? Those constructs from a family unit perspective, from where I fit in an organization. And I was giving up my power and not truly believing in myself. So when I was told I was being disrespectful because I was expressive or because I was direct, I took it to heart. If I was using my hands when I was speaking or I was too loud, it was like, oh, I'm the problem, right? Mm. Again, I'm not saying we should be disruptive and we should not adapt. But owning who you are to me simplistically translates into is get to know yourself enough where you understand yourself. You know those gifts you bring that are your innate strengths. And where are those places that you know that are your shadows or where you do have missteps? So when somebody gives you feedback and say, uh, Priya, you were being a little too loud, don't get defensive. Just know, take a breath and know that you do get excited sometimes because you're expressive. And so take a breath and say, okay, Marisa, I hear you. I'm not going to be like, Marisa, I wasn't being loud because then I'm defensive, right? right, right. So owning who we are is the, it's so easy to say, but one of the hardest things because it requires constant reflection and being present with yourself. And I have been very privileged to have been gifted that insight. And I've been on that journey for the last about four years now. And so mm -hmm. I, I just hope everybody in their lifetime gets to a place where they can they can just recognize who they are, the good, bad, and the ugly, because it all comes out in, in some time, right. and just be <laughs> okay with it. Yes, yes. I love that. And on that note, I think, I mean, if, if our listeners don't take anything from this, which I think they'll take a lot, but definitely owning who you are, and that is definitely what we're hoping for folks that go through our leadership um, program as well, right? Find like own who you are, not who someone else tells you you are. So that was beautiful, beautiful way to end it. And I thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Priya, for being a guest on my show today. Um, before I close out, I'd always give an opportunity. Is there anything you want to share in closing that maybe didn't come up that you wanted to say? I think we've covered it all. And thank okay. you again. Thank you again for just being an amazing friend, a great partner, and for your invitation today. I truly appreciate it and enjoyed being with you. Thank you. Me too. Me too. All right, folks, that is a wrap for this episode of From Empower to Me Power. Please join us next time as we further explore the differences that make a difference when it comes to BIPOC leaders. Until next time, stay me powered.